At first glance, the book of Hosea appears to be a powerful call for Israel to repent. But as is so often the case in the books of the Old Testament, there's even more here than meets the eye. I'm Mark Holt, and this is Gospel Doctrine. Welcome to episode 34. I will betroth thee unto me in righteousness. Today we're studying the book of Hosea, and I'd like to welcome any of our new listeners. As always, if you want to ask a question about something we've either covered in the past or will cover in the future, email the show at gt at gospeltoctrine.com. I'd like to make everyone aware today that next week, uh, the 20th of September 2018, we will be hosting a live event, as we've done once before. Our second lesson was a live event, and this one will be a special episode. The title of that will be The Six Antecedents of Isaiah, and this will be my official... The video that we take of this will be my official application for Education Week in 2019. So I hope that as many of you uh, as can make it will come, and I uh, look forward to seeing you there. The, the location, I'll announce next week in next week's podcast uh, we have we have yet to settle on a venue but that will be Thursday night the 20th at 7 from 7 to 8 p.m. so I hope to see as many of you there for the live event as uh, as can as can come and that will in that in that lesson we'll be discussing what makes Isaiah so special and a few keys that we can keep in mind to make Isaiah easier not only easier to understand but more fun to read and uh, when, you, when you start to really unlock the meanings that are buried in the book of Isaiah, it feels really good. You feel really smart, like you've, like you've uh, accomplished something worthwhile. So I hope, to, I hope to lead as many people through that process as possible. Obviously, um, nobody understands it perfectly, and so I don't, I don't make that claim, but, uh, but I do find it more fun than I used to to read Isaiah, and I hope to unlock that for for all of you as well. That's the 20th of September. Okay, before we get into the substance of the book, let's talk a little bit about Hosea the man. Now, we don't know uh, too much about him, but we know that Hosea lived in the northern kingdom roughly around the time of Jeroboam II, who is considered by many to be the most wicked king of either the northern or southern kingdom. And so this was several generations after the dividing of the kingdoms. And we're entering in now into a new phase in our um, in our study of the Old Testament. So we, uh, until now, we've either been studying books with no historical grounding or books that have uh, almost a purely historical grounding. So Genesis through the, the five books of Moses, Genesis through Deuteronomy is... The, the history of the people of Israel right up until the point where they entered the promised land. Then we have the, even though Joshua is called a prophetic book and Judges prophetic book, those are largely historical books. So the, the Jews traditionally divide up the Old Testament into three sections, the Torah, which can also mean the law, but is perhaps more accurately rendered learning. 
the Torah or the books of Moses. And uh, in the New Testament, in fact, uh, when when Jesus discusses the Torah, he the, the word in the King James Version that we get is the law, the law and the prophets. The law, the prophets, and the writings are the three are the three divisions. And so uh, what we've been dealing with, first of all, are the, the prophets are books like Joshua and Isaiah. These are the major prophets. And if, and if you want to know which prophet falls into which, um, you can look that up online. But the usually it's the larger books. They're not considered minor prophets because they were less holy. But um, as we discussed last week in the episode on Jonah, they're, they're minor prophets because their books are shorter. However, uh, some of these prophets have different purposes than others. For example, the purpose of the book of Joshua was to continue the history given in the Torah. And then we have the book of Judges. And then we have the book of Kings. And we have the book of Chronicles. These are historical works. To use a Book of Mormon analogy, it's almost like... Um, what we've been reading are the books on the plates of what what Nephi called his larger plates or the plates of his father, and the, the translation of which unforth, uh, unfortunately uh, was lost in the time of Joseph Smith. And now what we're getting into are these prophetic works, these smaller prophetic works. Well, some of them are larger, but prophetic works that aren't grounded in history. So they don't relate um, the, the, the history of the nation of Israel they're not concerned with the kings and the succession of kings, the wars, the politics, the events. They're concerned with the teachings of the prophets. And if you were to use uh, Nephi's language, you would say these are more concerned with the spiritual um, dealings of God with his people and therefore would be on the smaller plates, as it were. And that's and Hosea is kind of the first book where we, we actually get into that. And I say it's the first one because, in my mind, officially the wisdom, the so-called wisdom literature of the Bible includes Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. But I also put Jonah into that category. And so we haven't—and and, and that's, I think, appropriate because Jonah doesn't fall into any—isn't um, readily classifiable into any— historical context. It's it's really just a book that can apply whenever you want it to apply. And Assyria, even though the Assyrian Empire is a it figures in the story, it's more of a character in the story than it is a historical entity. Uh, that's my personal take on it. So here we are talking about the book of Hosea, and it's kind of a new a new pattern. But it's one that now that we're into the prophets, we'll see it repeated often. So let's discuss, let's put this into the historical context that of, the, of the Old Testament as we've studied it so far. First of all, the way the Jews see themselves is the very, God created the nation of Israel or the Hebrews in order, as he told Abraham, Abraham in order so that they could bless all the nations of the earth. And the way that they are to do this, according to their understanding, is by demonstrating to all the nations, what it's like to live a covenant relationship with God and be a chosen people. So a lot of the Jews have received over the centuries a lot of persecutions because they consider themselves to be a chosen people. But that would have not been the case had most of the people doing the 
persecuting understood what they meant by that. They were chosen not to receive more blessings, but to receive more commandments and thereby to demonstrate what it's like to be faithful to God. And thus they were to bless all of the world. So that was the that was the story of the creation. God's first attempt to create such a people was with Adam and then Adam fell and then Noah and the people were too wicked and so they all had to be destroyed. And so a few generations later God tried a third time with Abraham and this this time God is determined not to give up as as faithless as Abraham's seed are to the covenants that God makes with them. God will never give up this time. Uh, even though he has to chasten them and even, even though he has to purify them and refine them. this The third time is the charm and God is never going to give up on Israel. This is the way Israel sees itself even back then. So they are sent to Egypt and they are unified there and then they're freed and they go through this um, exodus, this, this process of learning to rely wholly upon God And while in the wilderness, God tells them exactly what he wants from them, which is, I want to make of you a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. In other words, the priests, as the priests are to you, the representatives of God, the people who do your ecclesiastical work, the the ones who perform sacrifices for you and perhaps teach you from the scriptures, you will be to everyone else. You will be a kingdom of priests to the world. The entire kingdom of Israel will be the world's priests because you will all be capable of representing God to the people who come to worship. So this is, this is the historical context into which Israel is. And then they eventually make their way to the promised land. And because they reject God, they choose kings for themselves. But then David comes along, this mighty king, and receives the Davidic covenant, which we talked about. And you can go back and listen to uh, we have a, we have the last couple of lessons on on David um, is where I specifically discuss the Davidic covenant. But the the gist of it is that David received the promise that he would give through his line would come this mighty king that would be like unto him. In other words, somebody who was subject to no foreign power and would be, follow God as well as be mighty in. Uh, political power. In the political arena, he would also be mighty in the spiritual arena, but even more so. And this is because of the words of some of the prophets, because of the teachings of David, because of the way this was interpreted, this is what people fully expected to happen. So right in between, if you take everything, all the events we just discussed, and then the Davidic covenant being the last event, and then the next event in the future is this messianic king coming along. This is where Israel sees itself in the progression of history. And so as we read Hosea, you'll see that Hosea will add a few more events to this progression, which is, um, well, we'll talk about what those events are, but Israel sees itself somewhere between David being given the Davidic covenant and this messianic promised king coming along. But they don't believe that, in other words, they see themselves at the tail end of history. They think the second coming of someone great is is at hand, and then everything will change for them. And I, I, I bring that up because that's kind of where we see ourselves, right? We we think of ourselves living just prior to the, the second coming of Jesus Christ, and then the world will significantly change. And 
those who have believed prior to his coming will will find themselves in a in a better place in a better world and this is how the jews saw themselves during the time of between the uh between the dividing of the kingdoms and the their conquering by babylon and assyria so this into this context is hosea and the book of hosea is a, is a compilation of Hosea's poetry, it's largely poetry that he writes his prophecies in, and it's it's decades worth of poetry. and And Hosea lived in the northern kingdom of Israel around the time of Jeroboam the second. And so, uh, if you'll remember, Jeroboam was the first king. The first was the first king of the northern kingdom of Israel, and Rehoboam the first king of the southern kingdom. Well, Jeroboam the second was largely considered considered by uh, the writers of the books of Kings and Chronicles that the worst, the most wicked of all the kings. And, and that includes Ahab, who, was, uh, who brought the worship of Baal in where it even hadn't even existed before and, and um, got Israel involved in all kinds of iniquities. It, even more wicked than Ahab was Jeroboam II. And during this time, some of the things were going on. First of all, the 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 worship of various gods. So Baal or Baal, as we often call him, was the god of the weather, the god of rain, um, uh, considered to be either the god of the sun or the god of rain. And Ash, Ashtarte or Ashtoreth, as she's variously called, the god of the goddess of fertility. But um, so Baal was worshipped by fertility, and so was Ashtarte. She was worshipped with usually some sort of sexual ritual. And there were other gods, including Moloch or Molech, the god where Israelites would burn their children, sacrifice their children. And these idolatrous gods caused all kinds of terrible atrocities to be observed as religious observances within Israel. And the more widespread this, this practice became, the more upset God became. And so then he sends Hosea to, to write and to teach things and in such a way that they would, they would get the Israelites' attention and let them know exactly what they were bringing upon themselves. So let's begin in chapters 1 and 2. Chapters 1, 2, and 3 uh, are, are thematically joined, but we'll talk about 1 and 2 first, and then we'll talk about chapter 3 at the end. But the, the theme here is the idea of a faithless woman. And Hosea employs a tactic which has been employed by prophets in the past. And I think two, two examples uh, leapt out at me. One is when David has a, a uh, an affair with with Bathsheba and then kills her her husband the prophet Nathan comes to him and this is in 2 Samuel chapter 12 and gives him this little parable of a ewe lamb and says um, there was a man who had a lamb it was it was the only thing he loved in the whole world and he was a poor man but a rich man came along and when he had some guests rather than um, rather than killing one of his own flock he sent and killed this poor man's 
his dearest possession, his ewe lamb, and dressed it for the for the uh, for his guests. And and David is so upset when he hears this tale of injustice that he says, "Surely this person will die." And then Nathan tells him, "Well, you're the one because you know all all Uriah had was." Bathsheba and you took him away and you killed and you killed Uriah and so you pronounce judgment on yourself and this this tactic of having a prophet relay something that is couched in metaphor and then having the the offender pronounce their own judgment is has been used to devastating effect throughout the Old Testament so that's the first example and then uh, Ahab as we, the King Ahab, as we mentioned earlier, he's in the book of First Kings, and I believe this is chapter 20. Uh, he's returning from battle, and he'd been commanded to, um, he'd been commanded to slay the enemy king, and instead he left him alive. And one of the sons of the prophets, as we uh, discussed when we talked about Elijah and Elisha, one of these prophetic, um, a member of, of one of these prophetic guilds, waited along the side of the road and he covered himself with ashes. And then when King Ahab passed along, he said, um, you know, I was, I was supposed to kill someone and I didn't do it. And, and I was, um, I was given this charge. And if, if not, then my own life would be forfeit. And King Ahab says, well, you made the pledge. If you're the one who made the pledge, then you're going to be held accountable for it. And then the, this, this prophet says back to him, okay, well, that is exactly what you did, and so therefore you will be held accountable. And even Ahab, as unholy as he was, recognized that he'd pronounced his own own judgment on his head, and so he went home very much disturbed. Well, that's also what's going on in the first chapters of Hosea. We have this extended metaphor of a relationship between a faithful husband and a faithless wife. And before we go any farther, I'm going to talk a little bit about um, the the word whoredom and whore and uh, the idea of a faithless woman as how it's treated in the book of Hosea. It's very tempting and it's probably uh, instinctual for a lot of people to think that this is a book about how women are faithless and how terrible it is when a woman is faithless. And that's not, if you, if, if you read it that way, and if you're triggered by that, and if you think it, and if your sensitivity is such that you think, oh, what a, what a patriarchal world this was, and what a sexist thing this was by today's standards, you're actually missing the point. And uh, the point is quite the opposite one. And the reason I bring that up is, um, it's not so often that an ancient work like this would have would would be totally acceptable under modern sensitivities. But actually, by using this example, Hosea is not saying that it's that it's terrible when women are faithless. He's actually he's actually attacking the men for their faithfulness and I'll and I'll discuss why. So um, that's something to, to to keep in mind and I think it's really fascinating. Um, so in chapters one, two and three, but uh, right now we'll concern ourselves with one and two. Hosea discusses the, first of all, Hosea is commanded to marry a prostitute. And it's unclear from the rest of the story. Did, was her faithlessness, did it occur before Hosea was commanded to marry her? 
or um, did she continue in her vocation after he married her, which seems less likely, or was her later faithlessness, was her later infidelity metaphorical and and hypothetical of a, of a woman, of such a woman, right? Because it's not exactly clear whether um, it was Hosea's wife or just some hypothetical unfaithful woman who who went around um, making her husband the fool, playing her husband for a, few, a fool, as this woman does. So regardless of, of which is the case, uh, Hosea is called to illustrate this example with his life. And so he's called to, to marry a woman who has been guilty of terrible sexual transgressions. And um, the first, ch- and, they have, and he has three children with her. And he's also commanded what to name his children. And his children are named Jezreel because God says, uh, in this valley, I will, I will destroy you. And the, the valley of Jezreel has a, has a number of names, but one of those is the valley of Megiddo. And because of its location and, and because it divides the northern kingdom of Israel from east to west, uh, a number of battles occurred there including a foretold battle of the final days. And so the, the Valley of Megiddo is s- symbolic of destruction. So the, the first child of the prophet Hosea and his, his wife Gomer is called Jezreel, or what we might think of as Armageddon. So name your children Armageddon, and then his, his following children are named No Mercy and Nobody. And there are a number of different ways you can you can translate these but um, God says name your next child no mercy name, name your first child Armageddon because I'm going to destroy Israel name your second child no mercy because I can't have I can no longer show mercy towards Israel and nobody because your third child is named nobody because now Israel has made me nobody to them I'm nobody to them they don't care about me at all so they will be nobody to me so these three children's names represent what the the coming punishments for Israel and um, so in this, in this metaphor, in this relationship, uh, this woman goes out, she enters into a covenant with a, with a husband, and then she goes out giving her love to others and finding all the, all the men around town are willing to sleep with her. And um, the husband, is, meanwhile, is giving her all these wonderful gifts and treating her like a loving husband should. But she takes these same gifts and gives them to her lovers. And then she says, oh, the, my, my lovers are so good to me. Look at what they give me. And um, bears children to them. Um, and, and God says, because she's done this, I'm going to expose her nakedness. And I'm going to also, I'm going to make her as a wilderness. If you look in chapter two, verse three. And I read this, I read the book of Hosea in the King James Version and also in a couple of other translations because um, the, the way King James translates this, uh, the King James Version renders this verse, chapter 2, verse 3, is not quite as drastic as the way that, uh, that other translations render it. So one is, you know, I'll make her like a, a barren place, a desolate place. And 
I, I found it in the um, in the message translation, which is very, very what you might call idiomatic. Remember, we talked about the spectrum between interlinear and in idiomatic. So this message translation is way far on the side of putting it into modern language the way that somebody might say it if that same revelation were given today, rather than trying to render, um, give us intact the metaphors and usages of the past in translation. And what he says is, I'll turn her skin into dry leather. In other words, God is going to God is going to take away that thing that makes her precious to other men, which is her looks and her beauty. So in this metaphor, God is saying, you know, here's this faith, faithless woman. She's doing she's doing all the most terrible things that a woman could do to her husband. Now, here's why here's why um my my contention is that God is not talking about faithless women in this. First of all, it's not women that are going to be reading the works of Hosea in ancient Israel. Even today, when Jews go to worship, the men are divided from the women. Women and men worship separately. And so um, the, the men would have been the ones to, first of all, the men are the ones to make the decision. Does the family, you know, if the family's going to go worship Baal or worship Ashtarte or any of these other gods, or if the family is going to um, travel the longer distance to go to the temple in Jerusalem, or the family is going to go to one of the golden calf temples in northern Israel. The It's going to be the father who makes this decision. And second of all, it's going to be most often the father who goes to synagogue, or and synagogues didn't even exist at this point, so I guess I, what I mean is who goes to... Um, where the, where the teachers and the scribes are discussing the scriptures and receives this kind of instruction. And it's going to be most often the, the father, the husband, who knows how to read. So if anybody's reading this stuff, it's going to be him. And, and therefore, God gives Hosea the idea to write this first metaphor, something that is going to provoke the most virulent emotional response possible. Which is what is gonna? What would be the thing that would bother the the people who are gonna hear this message more than any other thing? And for these men who are, who are gonna hear it, it would be the idea that there's a woman somewhere who's getting away with this terrible behavior. She's playing her husband for the fool. She's taking his gifts. She's taking his wealth and giving it to other men, and she's bearing other men children. And this would and these men are all thinking as they're hearing this. They're thinking. Yes, yeah, according to our law, this woman should be taken outside of town and stoned to death, right? So they're all getting upset. And this goes back to this idea of um, people pronouncing their own judgment, because then God says, well, guess what? You are the faithless woman. And so these men who have been thinking, oh, yeah, this, this faithful, faithless woman is terrible. Then God says, even, even as this faithless woman, Israel has been like this to me. I'm the righteous husband. I'm the one who's been giving all the gifts. I'm the one who um, have never strayed from the things that I promised, and yet this, this other part of the covenant who should have been faithful to me has been going wandering after other gods, has been giving them their most precious gifts and taking the things that I gave them and giving them to other gods and giving them the credit for having given them to her in the first place. 
And so then what God says, this is what I'm going to do. You know, you've pronounced your own judgment. You by your by the emotional response that you're feeling, um, you should know that I'm justified in what I'm going to say next. I'm going to I'm going to expose. I'm going to expose your nakedness. I'm going to show all the nations around you that you have no military might. I'm going to remove the fruits of idolatry. Um, I'm going to expose your alliances with the Assyrians and your and with the Egyptians for what they are, that your attempt to uh, be accepted among worldly nations. And I'm going to remove the very thing that makes you the most special in the case of this this wandering this woman with a wandering eye it was her beauty and in the case of israel it's the fact that they're a a peculiar people we talked about the idea of a a segula or a peculiar treasure the peculiar treasure of kings the thing that even a king the most wealthy of all would keep locked away in his treasury or in a safe somewhere the thing that's most precious to him above all silver and gold i'm going to take away the fact that you're my segula and this is my interpretation because because Hosea doesn't say this, but he he likens Israel to this faithless woman in every other respect. And he says, you know, God says, I'm going to dry you up. I'm going to make you desolate. And the way that the way that I would liken that to a person is to or to um, the way that we liken it to a person is to take away her beauty. The way we liken it to the nation of Israel is to take away the fact that they are God's peculiar people. So that's what God is promising. He's he's first of all he gives this metaphor th- that it that would provoke a very very strong emotional response. And then he says um I'm going to do exactly what you think should be done to such a woman. I'm going to um pronounce upon her all the penalties that I'm going to I'm going to take away the things that are precious to her and I'm going to um remove her from my sight. Now, God tempers that a little bit later on, and we'll talk about chapter three uh, uh, later. But after this metaphor of the faithless woman, God uses a number of other metaphors. Um, but he also he also has some, or Hosea, I should say, not just God, but Hosea. In, his, in, in all of the poetry that Hosea spends all these years writing, and, and, and that's another reason that I like to branch out in the in the translations that I read for the Old Testament is because when you're reading one of these other translations online, generally they place the the lineation when it's poetry, you can tell by the way that the lines are organized. So the line will be cut short and then the next line will be indented and you can see, oh, these are lines of poetry that that correspond to each other because otherwise you wouldn't know obviously poetry is one of the hardest things to preserve in translation so it's kind of fun to know exactly when a prophet is lapsing into uh, is waxing poetic you might say and when he's just writing prose um, so most of the book of Hosea is poetry and it so in his next series of poems he explains and then we would probably consider the the next section to uh, comprise chapter four through chapter eleven, and in this he talks about all the things that are lacking in Israel. And one of the main things is the knowledge of God. And this this word knowledge in Hebrew 
is it's not just knowledge. The way the, the way the Hebrews use knowledge, um, it was interesting in my ward last Sunday. We we discussed knowledge, wisdom, and understanding, and uh, knowledge is not just information, but the way that uh, the way that I might know how to make a particular dish by reading a recipe, we would call that knowledge. But the but I don't really know the recipe until I've cooked it, and I really know it if I've cooked it a number of times, and at least one of those times it turned out absolutely delicious. And that's what God is talking about when He says nobody knows the nobody knows the Lord. There is no knowledge of God in Israel. In other words, you you might read the scriptures, you might have heard the pronouncements of the prophets, but you actually don't know Yahweh. You don't have the kind of knowledge that would be born of study, obedience, dedication, devotion, and humility in your heart. This is the kind of knowledge that's missing. And uh, that when, once you get that level of knowledge, it approaches wisdom. Wisdom is the idea that knowledge will be used in a way that includes a moral framework. So knowledge could be applied to anything like I the example I used was cooking. You could have knowledge about anything, but when you use your knowledge in such a way that it has uh, that it has a moral framework attached to it, that's wisdom, according to the way the ancient Hebrews use those words. So that's what you can understand when you when you see those. And then understanding is similar to knowledge, and we can talk about that um, maybe in a future lesson. So. The lack of knowledge of God, in other words, nobody's got a relationship with God. And the people who should have the relationship with God are the ones who are the worst. And this is another, this is a point that God starts to make is the more priests, the more evil. So, you know, you think, you think the priests would be um, helping people to worship Jehovah and follow in the ways of righteousness, and yet nobody's doing that. Um... And in fact, the priests are making it worse. The priests are leading the people in what they're doing. And one of the things that were, was happening, and we'll discuss this again um, next week. Our lesson is Joel and Amos, and it's that which is an interesting division because, in fact, uh, Joel and Hosea were almost contemporaries. Joel was even a little bit earlier than Hosea, and Amos was probably many generations later. So. Um, the way the church divided this up is more thematic than chronological. But um, in fact, the message of Joel and Hosea was to the same people at the same, around the same time and about the same danger, which is this impending attack by the Assyrians. The Hosea was actually their final warning. The Assyrians are going to come in and wipe you out. And when they do, it's not going to be pretty. And, um, and God was saying, God said terrible things like, you're going to, you're never going to have fruit in your vineyards anymore. But even if you do have fruit, a foreign power is going to come in and kill them. You're never going to have children again. But even if you do, someone's going to come in and kill your children. And sometimes, uh, some translations render this, and I will kill your children. So God is pronouncing terrible judgments upon Israel. Some of the things they had going on, aside from the worship of these idols, which led them into all kinds of iniquities and and, and sexual rituals and the, the, the sexual 
the theme of sexual infidelity is carried beyond this metaphor to the actual literal behavior of the people of Israel. And here's another, uh, if you if you look up verse chapter 4, verse 14, here's another reason why uh, this is not a book, this is not a message that is calling out women for being unfaithful. You know, even today we have, uh, it's, it's quite often, it's quite often complained about that there's a double standard when men are in, unfaithful and women are unfaithful. And uh, that men can be praised for having the ability to to get women to be attracted to them, while women are criticized for being having loose behavior. And be that as it may, and that and that's definitely a double standard that has existed. But be that as it may, um, it's interesting in the book of Hosea. You can you can read that God says. First of all, one of the penalties that he pronounces is your your daughters will go after other men and the the wives of your sons will also go after other men. They'll go out whoring. And so then you think, oh, God is saying, well, it's terrible, you know, what about the sons? What about the what about the husbands of the daughters? What aren't these men doing anything wrong? And that's exactly what God says. He says, but I'm not going to pronounce any penalties on the women. What I'm saying, the problem I have is with the men, because these women wouldn't have anyone to sin with if there weren't men patronizing them. All the whoredoms are being committed by men and not by women. Very fascinating. So God knows who is, and uh, Hosea knows who his audience is, and it's an audience of men. And he's not saying, your wives are the ones, your daughters, your daughters-in-law are the ones who are guilty of these transgressions. You are the ones, you men, you, you who are hearing my poems read to you and who are um, more capable of studying these poems than your wives or your daughters are. You are the ones who are guilty and who God will hold accountable. And um, even by today's standards, a very progressive message and dead on, I mean, totally accurate. Uh, so that's one of the sins that God, that Hosea is, is condemning in uh, chapters 4 through 11. And then another one is a little known practice, but a terrible practice was the neglect of the poor. So there was this huge division between rich and poor. And if you were poor, you could end up in... Uh, the what you might consider uh, a modern equivalent would be debtor's prison, not super modern, but just from a couple of hundred years ago, debtor's prison or indentured servitude. And people would, if they got poor enough, they could be put into indentured servitude and not have any one to speak for them. They had no choice about the matter. And what was happening was the wealthy had the power to force someone either to to pressure them economically uh, to borrow more money, to need to borrow more money, and then they would make it so they couldn't pay it back, and they would—they were just putting people into indentured servitude. In other words, they were enslaving others. And this terrible treatment of the poor, God had noticed it, and he—he he was noticing. So, in other words, there were not just individual sins, but there were societal sins. The society was sick at its core, and people were being exploited and enslaved by the by the multitudes and 
So Hosea, what Hosea does is he says, um, then we get into, I guess, I guess what I should say is um, this, this middle portion of the book of Hosea sort of has a conclusion in, in chapter 11, where God says, you're like my son. And this, this is an allusion to what Moses said to Pharaoh. He said, uh, you let my son, let my firstborn you are you are imprisoning my firstborn. Let my firstborn son go. And in chapter eleven, God says, "O Ephraim, my son, you know my Israel, my son. I can't, I I should pronounce all these judgments upon you, but I can't uh, because you're my son. Because I love you. However, you are the you are capable of choosing what will happen to you. So then." Uh, then we're in the final chapters of Hosea, and in chapters 12 and 13, Hosea sort of points out that the faithlessness of Israel has been going on a long time, and he, and he looks back even to the time of Jacob. You know, Jacob deceived his father to get his uh, brother Esau's birthright, and then after Israel had, been, had spent generations in Egypt, and they make their way to Sinai, and Moses is up, they've, they've seen all these wonders, and Moses is up on the mountain, and they fall immediately into worshiping a calf, and then they rebel against Moses. And you might remember that we, we talked about um, one of the cousins of Moses who led this rebellion, and the earth swallowed them up. And then they chose a king, and we, we talked about the way that God was hurt by that. You know, God... God was insulted by the fact that he had always said, I will be your king, and if you choose a king, you'll do it without me, and they did it anyway. So he, Hosea makes reference to these three times and, and implies that there are many more in which Israel has rejected God. So he's saying this kind of thing has been going on a long time, and I've forgiven, I've forgiven so many times. And uh, again, that's a that's an allusion to the book of Exodus as well, which is Exodus chapter 34. And you'll remember when Jonah is lamenting that God is going to forgive these Ninevites who have repented. And he says, I knew, I knew you were going to forgive them because you've, you've always said you're a God who's slow to anger and quick to forgive. And that's an allusion. And this is an allusion to Exodus chapter 34, where God says, he talks about his attributes of being slow to anger and quick to forgive. And then, uh, so that's, that's chapter 12 and 13. He talks about these, the history of Israel's faithlessness. And, um, and then in chapter 14, the final chapter of, of Hosea, God says, well, here's what's going to happen to you. You know, you're going to, you've got one last chance. And it's not very hopeful, this one last chance. God says, you know, please repent and return to me. But I know you're not going to listen, so... Really, what this, what I'm saying is, someday you will repent and return to me. In other words, I know you're going to get carried away by the Assyrians. You're going to be destroyed. And Latter-day Revelation tells us that there was some group of these ten tribes that got carried away that remained cohesive enough to be called a unit, and they somehow escaped and remained together and and found a place to to be where they could have their own prophets and their own books of scripture revealed to them. Now, we don't know who those people are, where they ended up, but um, 
with with those people put aside, the entire northern kingdom, and this didn't happen all at once. The the Assyrians conquered different parts of the northern kingdom at different times, but eventually the entire northern kingdom was utterly wiped out. And they took people, when they conquered a people, they would take part of them and put them over here, and they would take part of them and put them over here. They would kill a lot of them. They would torture people for worshiping their former gods. And so Israel ceased, the northern kingdom of Israel ceased to exist as a people. They were scattered, and they were scattered in such a way that um, whoever survived of it 4,000 years later, 3,000 years later, their descendants are still in hiding. That's how, that's how traumatic it was. And uh, so, and I'm, I'm speaking a little bit tongue-in-cheek there because we don't know exactly what the status of the, of the lost tribes is, but uh, God is telling them at the end here, I know things are going to be bad for you for a long time. And then he gives this, this message of hope, which is there will come a day when you will listen to me. And instead of having these words written down for you that you can, instead of having the knowledge of God read to you as scriptures, it's going to be written on your hearts. And in that day, instead of having to go to the temple to experience this, my presence, which is my Shekinah, everyone will be a temple. Everyone will have the presence of God within them. He's talking about what we can look, from a modern perspective, we can look back and realize he's talking about the millennial day. He's not talking about the time when uh, Israel or Judah is conquered by Babylon and then comes back and and rebuilds the temple um, under Ezra, which we'll we'll talk about um, in a few weeks. But he's talking about the millennial day. And I promised that we would discuss some of the additional events that the that the prophets are going to bring up. So we, we talked about sort of the the historical context that Israel finds itself in, which is um, being led to the promised land and being told that they would be a, a a kingdom of priests or an example to the nations, and through all through Abraham's kindred would all the earth be blessed. Well, what the prophets are now talking about is you're going to have to, you're going to be putting time out for a time, as it were. You're going to go into captivity, and things are going to get really bad before they get better. So it becomes part of the national consciousness, you might say. Israel knows they're going to be carried away into captivity, and this is one of the reasons why um, the, the book of, the plot device used in the book of Jonah is so effective, is because Jonah is made aware by Hosea and by other prophets, we can presume that the book of Jonah was written to people who knew, were aware of um, what the people of Israel at this time would have, would have known about prof- what was prophesied for their future. Whether the book of Jonah was written during this time or centuries later, the people later on, they knew exactly what the Assyrians represented. So the point is that it became part of this national awareness that we're going, everyone's going to be conquered. And Babylon is used as a symbol. Uh, The Assyrians conquered the north and Babylon, the Babylonian empire conquered Judah. But sometimes those names are used interchangeably because Babylon 
is used as a, a catch-all term for the the mighty, the military might, and the worldly might of other nations that don't believe in God. So they are they are the agency that will be used to oppress an Israel that does not believe in Jehovah and doesn't worship properly. So the Romans later on are also considered Babylon, and Egypt is also called Babylon. And so come out of Babylon means come out of these nations that are not worshiping God, but are given power for a time. So it becomes part of that context, this historical context. And this is important as we go into studying Isaiah. It becomes part of that context that Israel is going to be carried away captive and then come back changed. And if you think about uh, the way that sinners are brought to repentance, so often people talk about hitting rock bottom. And Israel just would not hit rock bottom. They would never experience enough pain that they were actually willing to change and repent until they were carried away captive into Babylon. And so that's, with Hosea, we get the start of this, this feeling that Israel has got some terrible things ahead, just ahead, and that once they, if they can survive that, if they can remain faithful through that, then they'll come back changed. So, and then, so in other words, there's another event, future event, put in between the present and the time of the messianic king. Not We, we can't expect this messianic Davidic king to show up right away. First, we're going to have to actually change ourselves and become more righteous. And the only thing that's going to make us do that is to be carried away captive into Babylon. So now Israelites begin to be aware that this is what's in store for them. And uh, obviously they're not they're not happy about that. But it's it's interesting that the the reaction of the Israelites to these prophets is one of resentment, anger, um, and often violence. We we read about that we read about that in the Book of Mormon with Lehi. He goes out and and proclaims their their wickedness, and then they seek to take away his life. The, the judgments pronounced in the book of Hosea are extremely harsh. And yet, um, why would it matter how harsh the judgments of a God are who doesn't exist? So this is the point, is Israel feels like they're being harshly judged, and yet they have acted for centuries like God isn't real, that he doesn't matter. In other words, as, as God puts it, I've been a nobody to you. So if I'm a nobody to you, what does it matter what my judgments are? Obviously, I'm not real, so I can pronounce these judgments as harshly as I want. They won't happen, right? So the fact that Israel, once again, they've condemned themselves, the fact that they don't like to be judged harshly by Jehovah means they actually do believe in Jehovah and their own conclusions, their own judgments are used against them. The way that they react to the judgments of God shows that they actually believed in God all along. And that brings us to chapter three. So in chapter three, God says what he will do to this faithless wife. I will take you into the wilderness. That's where we met. That's where we had our first date. That's where we fell in love. I'm going to go back into the wilderness with you, and I'm going to court you again. 
and I'm going to make you fall in love with me. We're going we're gonna to fall in love all over again. We're going to rekindle our relationship and we're going to recommit and we're going to be we're going to be a faithful couple again. We're going to be a happily married couple. And uh, then God commands Hosea to rename his children instead of no mercy, mercy, and instead of nobody, somebody. And the, the message is, one day I'll be God to Israel again. It may not be right away. That's up to you. You are your own judges. You can choose exactly how you want this to go. Well, I spent all this time talking about what Israel has in store for it because, as we'll discuss in our special episode of Isaiah and and in a lot of other times and places, um, the the nation of Israel and the history, the events that occur to the nation of Israel, they are very much meant as a spiritual lesson for each of us in our personal lives. So the way God treats Israel and the messages that God sends to Israel about how he's going to treat them, all of those are personal messages as well. Israel has the history that it has for a reason. And that reason, part one of those reasons, is to show us what it means to have a God who is so forgiving and loving, and yet a God who cannot abide sin, a God who holds us accountable and yet is quick to come to our aid and our rescue, who is our Savior and our Redeemer, and at the same time has a plan for us which includes us being righteous. And so the final image of Isaiah in chapter 14 is is that one day there will be be a people who are enjoying the fruits of the earth, and God will heal them. And it's not going to be because they have more virtue. It's going to be because God performs a wonderful work among them. And you and I can take hope from that because the truth is none of us are capable capable of transforming ourselves to the extent we need to be transformed. And this is the message of the book of Hosea, which is, and I hope I didn't call it Isaiah at any point, but if I did, I was wrong. This is the message of the book of Hosea that God understands we, we can't do this alone. We make small choices and God magnifies them. God magnifies our good choices and he erases the effects, if we're willing, of our bad ones. That's what God has always done. And he's willing to do it for this terrible nation of Israel, which is about as bad as and about as offensive as a, a faithless woman would be to an ancient Hebrew man. Would would be the utmost offensive creature, the somebody who is worthy of death. And if somebody that disgusting could be redeemed, forgiven, changed to the point where the earth is blessed by their presence, then what can God do with us if we're willing to make those small choices that he can magnify so greatly and be our savior? And therefore, you can see, in, as, as Jesus taught to the disciples on their way to Emmaus, uh, this is one more example of how we can see that the the testimony of Christ is on every page of the Old Testament. And so I pray we'll remember that. I pray we will take advantage of God's willingness to forgive us, to take us back into the wilderness, to renew his faithful relationship with us and start fresh. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. 
This has been Gospel Doctrine, a nonprofit podcast hosted and produced by Mark Holt with bumper music by Kendra Lowe. Gospel Doctrine is not affiliated with nor endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.